We're continuing our study in the book of Acts. And uh, while you're opening up to Acts chapter 2, I'm going to uh, try to multitask here and, uh, and just kind of just fill in the, the change groups. Um, a lot of people, you know, Chelsea said everything that needs to be said, but I, I just want to reiterate something that she said, and that's that a lot of people, when they hear something like change groups or they hear the, they hear the, the name AA or anything like that, we can often immediately think, well, that's for people that have these huge problems with drugs or with alcohol or sex addiction or something like that. And the Genesis process definitely does address those things. Substance abuse, uh, issues around uh, compulsion in, a, in, a, in any variety of ways, but also just some stuff that is, is serious, but we don't think of it as serious a lot of times. Stuff like anxiety, depression, anger. I mean, one of the most stable linear thinking, intelligent, highest IQ dudes that I, I mean, somebody that I look at, I'm like, I want to, I want to be this. I mean, this guy actually had a lot to do with me becoming a pastor. He's like a guy that I admire in every realm. He's a loving father. He's a, he's a doting husband. Um, he did a Genesis process because he had an issue with anger and he was surprised at what he found when he did some digging there. Uh, it is a timely commitment. It's uh, once a week you meet with a group of people, typically bef- between four and six people. It's split up, uh, male, female, because it's just easier to be honest whenever you're with the people of the same sex. And it, you meet for about an hour once a week. Um, you can meet here at the church. There's other places that people meet. Uh, and it becomes a real tight-knit, intentional community of people. So if you want to facilitate something like that, if you've done the Genesis process before and you want to help a group of people work through that, Email me if you've never heard of it, but it sounds cool. Email me. We can meet in person. We can talk after tonight, whatever else. Uh, so feel, please feel free to, to take advantage of that. So by now, you should be to Acts chapter 2. Uh, don't hold your breath. I'm going to read a long portion of this text. I'm going to read from verse 14 to verse 36. So follow along with, with me as we, as we dive into this. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words that these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God said, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men will dream dreams, and even on my male slaves and female slaves I will pour in those days my spirit onto them, and they shall prophesy. And I will put wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, of blood and fire and vapor and smoke, and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood." before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was, it was impossible for him to be held by its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted, and moreover, my flesh will also live in hope because you have not forsaken my soul to Hades nor given your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made me know, you have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. 
Men and brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his own body on his throne, he looked ahead and he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither forsaken to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Bow with me for just one more second. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for tonight. Lord, I pray that by your sovereignty and by your power and by your wisdom, you would Speak to the people that are here tonight in the way that only you can, that you would use the broken intellect and the broken vocabulary of a guy like me to preach your word and only your word, and that I would keep my opinions and my preferences out of it. Lord, move us, teach us, speak to us. We are here to listen to you. We are here to learn from you. We love you. Thank you so much for this evening and all of the hands and feet that make it possible for us to meet here tonight. And it's your name that we pray. Amen. So before I dive into the text, I, I, wanna, I wanna show you guys something that relates to this text and it's one of my favorite things about Peter's first sermon here in Acts chapter two and it's, it's, this, it's this picture behind me and maybe you've seen this before, maybe you're familiar with this and you know all about it but in all likelihood you probably don't. Um, the guys that put this together I'm not real familiar with but the Bible has been identified and labeled as the world's first and most comprehensive hyperlinked book. And so what you're looking at here is a diagram that some people have put together. The white lines on the bottom is every verse in the Bible. All of those white lines are a verse in the Bible. And the length of the verses, or the, the length of the lines is how many times that verse is referenced by another verse in scripture. And so this arching rainbow here, if you start on the left-hand side, Whatever verse that is on the very far left, those arching lines show you, if you follow them closely, all of the other verses that reference that first verse. And then the next verse is referenced all across the line. The next verse referenced all across the, across the line. I don't know what this long one is in the middle, but whatever verse that is, is by far referenced more than any other verse in the Bible. And so the reason why I wanna show you this, and, and uh, Ryan, we can just leave that up here tonight because it's pretty cool. Um, the reason why I wanna show you this is because the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. People, preachers, the apostles, Jesus, everything comes from the scriptures. And if you go through the Bible from Genesis 1 all the way to the very end of Revelation, the Bible just turns over on itself. Every thing refers to everything else. Every verse, every truth, every doctrine, every reality, every doxology, every life, every king, every slave, everyone, Jesus himself, everything is connected and all of it is linked together. And ultimately everything is pointing to the person of our living Christ. And somebody took the time to put together, there's 67,000 plus cross-references in scripture, 67,000. I don't know what kind of Adderall those people are taking, but good for them, 67,000 references. And this is a book that was written on three different continents with 40 different authors in three different languages. And still, it's perfectly in line with itself. And the reason why I bring this up to begin with is because what Peter is going to do is he's going to preach a sermon 
to many people from many different parts of the Mediterranean, as we looked at last week, all the way from Persia to, to Italy, Rome, down into Arabia, people coming from all over the Mediterranean into Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And he's telling them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Lord, and he uses the Bible to do so. And I like sermons like that. I like sermons that use the Bible. And so to begin here, just kind of reviewing what we talked about last week and catching up and getting onto the, getting onto the track that we're on tonight, what we've, what we've been studying, what we've been looking at, what we've been considering is this reversal of Babel. If you know the story of the story of, of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, it's human beings trying to take over the world, trying to dominate, trying to establish a name and a, and a legend for themselves, trying to establish something that's really going to last, but it's in their own human power, their own human intellect, their, their own human skill level. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read to you this a parts of this story from Genesis 11 about the Tower of Babel. Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words and it happened that as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach all the way into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But then Yahweh came down to see this city and the tower which was being built by the sons of men. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people and they have one language and this is what they have begun to do so now nothing which they propose to do will be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. And as the story continues, the Lord miraculously confuses the language of all the workers and they start to babble. It's the Tower of Babel. They start to speak languages that they don't understand and it ceases their work. It's, it's God's opposed authority over human domination, over human hubris and arrogance. And what we have here tonight is the reversal of that. We talked about this last week, the Feast of Pentecost. People came from all over the Mediterranean to Jerusalem for the feast, and it is there that God the Spirit came down, ignited the 120 people there, filled them with the power of the Holy Spirit to speak languages that they hadn't studied, and it blew the people around them away. They stood around looking, saying, how is it that these guys are just some dumb Galileans, that's what they say, but they're speaking, a lang they're speaking, our, our, they're speaking our language. How is this? What is, what is going on here? How is this happening? What we saw there was that everything was pointing back to the first fruits. Everything was pointing back to Jesus. The first fruit of life after death. The first fruits of resurrection. Jesus Christ is the first one. He's our brother. He's the one that stepped before us, went into the grave and came out, resurrected life, and never died again. Lazarus died again. The young boy who was the widow's son was raised from the dead. He died again. Jesus is the first fruits. He's the first one to raise from the dead, never to see the grave again, never to see corruption, never to be defiled by decay. He is the first fruits of the evidence of resurrected life. And we saw the first fruit of our, our eternal inheritance, the Holy Spirit came down. Ephesians 1.14 says that the Holy Spirit, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we take possession of it. The first fruits of resurrection, the first fruits of our eternity, and we saw the first fruits, and we're going to continue to look at the first fruits of the harvest of the kingdom of God. 3,000 souls are going to be saved. Thousands upon thousands. Some estimate somewhere right in around 
half of a million people descend onto Jerusalem for the, for the Feast of Pentecost. And as we're going to look at, I was thinking we were going to get to it tonight. I was kidding myself. Next week, we're going to see that there's actually 3,000 people saved in this one moment, and they go back to where they came from. So the 120 that were, that were together in one place were filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues for the purpose of world evangelism, turns into 3,000 people just like that in one day. And we're going to continue to see that preaching takes a premium in the book of Acts. Chapter 2, right here, starting in verse 14 and following. Chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 7, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. Chapter 20 and chapter 28, we see people again and again and again and again preaching the word of God. And it starts right here with Peter. He stands up in verse 14 and he says, Taking a stand with the eleven, he raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, these men are not drunk as you suppose. It, it, it makes me wonder, you know, your imagination can, it can wander a little bit. These 120 people were all speaking different languages and there had to be people in the crowd that heard the 120 speaking and there was languages there that they didn't understand and so their accusation was these men are drunk. These men and women who are speaking to us are babbling out of drunkenness. And I love that, I love that Peter's defense is not, these are holy men of God, or it's a holy day of the week, or we're adults and we don't party, we don't drink, we're disciplined, we don't indulge. His defense is, it's nine in the morning. It's, <laughs> Peter and I grew up in different circles. Nine in the morning was no reason to not be drunk whenever I was in my 20s. But that's not the point. He's saying, listen, it's nine o'clock in the morning. These are devout Jews. They're not drunk. In fact, he's going to tell us what's going on, and it's far more awe-inspiring than that. He says, these guys aren't drunk. But what's actually happening, verse 16, is this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And he pulls a prophecy out from Joel. This is Joel 2 verses 28 through 32. It's a direct quote from that book. But what's even cooler is that there's multiple connections happening here. So we're in Acts chapter 2. This is the birth of the church. This is the first apostolic sermon. This is the first apostolic preacher. And he quotes from Joel, but Joel is connected to Numbers. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses is bummed. He's tired. He's frustrated. He's, he's mad, and he comes to the Lord. The people are complaining once again, and he comes to Yahweh, and he says, you know what, Lord, I can't do this. This is too many people for me. They're whining. I can't give them what they want. If, you're gonna, if this is my job, if this is really what you expect me to do, just kill me now. Just take me out of the game. And the Lord comes down, and he has mercy on him, and Yahweh says to Moses, all right, here's what we're going to do. Some of the spirit that I've put on you, we're going to share it. We're going to get 70 of your guys. So pick 70 of your elders and bring them out to a tent. Bring them out of the camp to a tent. And I will put some of the spirit that I have put on you. We'll put it on them. And you can delegate some of your authority. And Moses says, right on. That's a good plan. Let's do it. So what happens is they go out of the camp. They get into a tent. And the spirit falls down. And authority comes upon these men. But there was two guys that were picked that didn't make it out of the camp into the tent. Eldad and Medad. So Eldad and Medad stay behind and they start prophesying in the camp and people in the camp start freaking out. They start thinking, what are these guys doing? We don't understand this. And one of the men actually gets upset and his name's Joshua. He's, he's Moses' assistant, if you will. He hears these two guys prophesying and he comes and he rats on them. He gets in Moses' face and he says, he says, Moses, look, stop these two. 
Eldad and Medad, they're prophesying in the camp. And then Joshua comes to Moses, a man from his youth, and he says, Moses, restrain them. Verse 29, Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Joshua comes to Moses and says, these two guys are trying to get some of your fire, bro. Stop them from doing this. They're trying to sit on your seat. And Moses says, listen, man, don't be jealous for my sake. He says, this is a good thing. Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Oh, would that all the people of Yahweh were prophets and that Yahweh would put his spirit on them. And then Moses returned to the camp, him and the elders of Israel. Joshua comes to Moses and says, look, this is what's going on, man. And Moses said, man, that all the people of the Lord, all the people of Yahweh would be prophets. If the spirit would fall on all of them, that would be awesome. And so the spirit or the, the prayer of Moses in Numbers chapter 11 becomes the prophecy of Joel, which becomes the power of the preaching of Peter in the book of Acts. That alliteration on peas was not intentional. But the, pro, the, pro, the, the prayer becomes a prophecy, becomes the power of Pentecost. All of it is connected. And so Peter's very intentional. He's not just picking willy-nilly something out of the Bible. He's saying, this is what's going on here. You guys are so closed-minded and so obtuse that you don't see that these guys aren't drunk. That's such a, that's an insult. That's pathetic. You're better than that. This is actually what's going on. And he pulls out of, he pulls out of the Bible, Joel chapter 2, and says, this is actually what's going on here. We're going to see probably a year from now in Acts chapter 18 and in chapter 19, there's two instances of Paul where he's speaking to the people of certain, certain places, certain cultures, and it says that he was reasoning with them. Paul was reasoning with the people from the scriptures, trying to persuade the Greeks and the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And this is what Peter is doing. He's taking something that's connected from Acts chapter two back into the Old Testament and saying, this is what's happening. He's persuading them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. And so he goes on to say, verse 17, and it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. What is this last days? In the last days, God says, the last days are all of the days since Jesus Christ was born and walked the earth and ministered. Hebrews chapter one says that Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken, us, spoken to us through his son. In the, in the timeline of redemptive history, we are in the section that is the last days. It's a long section for us. It's so far been 2,000 plus years, but these are the last days. And this is part of what we call the now and not yet kingdom, which we're going to address again later. But this is a prophecy concerning the last days my spirit will come on all mankind. Daughters and sons shall prophesy. There'll be visions. There'll be dreams. Verse 18, even on my male slaves and my female slaves. And I love this because one of the things that we learn from Pentecost where the Holy Spirit comes down and people speak in all these different tongues is that what God is communicating there is that his gospel is not just for one culture, not just for one tongue, not just for one people group or demographic or place in the world geographically. The gospel is for everybody and even for every class every culture and every class, even male and female slaves. And I will pour out my spirit 
And I'll put wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. These signs, these, the blood and the fire and the vapor and the smoke, this is, this is part of the now and not yet kingdom. In Matthew 27, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, it says that from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, there was total darkness over the land. And there's some scholars and commentators that point to that and they see Matthew 27, verse 49. That was one of these signs. That was one of the things happening in the sky that the Lord was, was communicating to us by that this is the work in progress. And I think that that's probably true. Some, some historians, uh, Josephus and others of his ilk, report that in AD 70, whenever the Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was, was sacked by Rome and the temple was destroyed, that there was astrological things that happened that people saw and and, uh, and, and, and wrote down and documented and said, we saw these things in the sky happening. But I, but I don't think that we're, that we're done yet. Now and not yet. Jesus came, the work of redemption is finished, but we're still working out the, ramica- the ramifications of that to this very day. And there will be a time when the world gets rolled up like a scroll. Second Peter 3.10, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come in the night like a thief. And so we're, in, we're still in the middle of this. If you read Revelation 6, Revelation 8, Revelation 9, there's all this imagery of blood, the moon turning to blood and of fire and of smoke. And so I'm not gonna get dogmatic about when and how all of this is gonna happen. Jesus said, not even, not even I know, but only the Father. But you should be aware of the times and of the seasons. But, it's, but it has begun. Jesus has gone to the cross. He died a real death. He had a real resurrection. There was real darkness over the land. The time has already begun. And so I would just say that I'm not going to sit here and try to figure out, you guys ever see that book, 86 Reasons Why the Lord's Coming Back in 1986? Is it, was it, well, then he rewrote it. He, 1988, he said 1988, 88 reasons he's coming in 1988, and then he, re, he republished a new one, said 89 reasons the Lord's coming in 1989. If he's still writing books, I'd actually be kind of curious. The guy's probably dead by now. But the point is, is that the Paul says that today is the day of salvation. Let's not sit around and wait. The Lord will come back like a thief. You will not expect him. Verse 21, and it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you're here tonight, I've got to say this every time I preach. If you're here tonight, if you're anything like me, I sat in church for years assuming that I had it all figured out, assuming that I knew the Lord, assuming that I was fine. I could coast, I could be promiscuous, and I could do my drugs and buy my cocaine and not turn the other cheek if you were here this morning and just live a life of violence and smack talk and vitriol and and malevolence and all the rest and that God's grace would cover over me. Jesus commands that we repent. It's, a, it's, not a, it's not a suggestion, it's not good advice, it's a command from the Lord to repent. And if you're here tonight and you're on the fence, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Don't ignore him. He's full of grace, he's full of patience, he's full of mercy, he's full of goodness, but eventually time will run out. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 22. So Peter says, you guys know the scriptures. From, the, from, from Joel to Numbers, you guys see this is actually what's taking place here. Now let's get down to brass tacks. Men of Israel, 
Listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Now Peter is gonna make, a, make it the claim that this prophecy of Joel and all of these things that are going on is directly linked to the Messiah himself who the, who the Jews had been waiting for, but Peter's gonna say you missed him. And not only did you miss him, but you killed him directly. You saw him, you knew him, you looked him in the white of his eyes, and you put him to death. And he says he was attested by miracles and wonders and signs. And those three different words are used because they each three convey uh, levels of the same idea. Miracles speak to the nature of what Jesus did supernaturally. Miracles are a supernatural act. Jesus did those. And they were wonders what the miracles did is they caused people to wonder. They caused people to stop. They caused people to pay attention. They caused people to ask questions. In a few instances, it actually caused legitimate, saving, repentant faith in the Lord. And the signs, miracles, wonders, and signs, that was the purpose. The miracle's purpose was to be a sign, to signify that this is the Lord's Messiah. He's able to do these things, not because he's a shaman, not because he's some prophet, who's microdosing LSD or whatever else, he is the Lord who's come to save. He's the Lord who's come to teach. By the way, this is a total side note. Did you guys hear that there's a, a storefront downtown that is illegally selling psychedelic mushrooms and just no one's doing anything about it? <laughs> oh, if I was 10 years younger. It's not good, don't go there, don't do it. I just can't believe they're getting away with it. I, anyways, the police are busy, I guess. They got defunded or something, but I just heard about that. I'm kind of, I'm kind of shocked. Kids these days will just never know. The signs are to signify who Jesus is. The signs in themselves, and, and I'm gonna just keep hitting this as we go through the book of Acts because we're gonna see all sorts of radical miracles in the book of Acts. And there's that question, there's, 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 there's PhD pastors who say the signs have ceased, miracles have ceased, tongues have ceased, prophecy has ceased. They died with the apostles. And there's other PhDs, PhD pastors who say, no, they haven't. I believe that they have not. I do not believe that you can get that from the scriptures. But I will say this, if you see a miracle, if you see a sign, if you hear someone speak in tongues legitimately and there's an interpretation for that, that the sign's not the point. The sign is meant to signify something beyond it. If you're driving through Texas and you see a sign that says Lubbock 20 miles away, you don't stop at that sign and say, I'm in Lubbock, Texas. That sign is there to tell you that there's something beyond it. And the miraculous signs were meant, Peter says, attested. Jesus Christ was attested. He was a man attested to you by God with these miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him. The signs were cool, but they were not the most important thing. They were meant to signify who Jesus is. And I love this. Peter, Peter goes on to say, these signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. None of these guys were ignorant. If you read the gospel accounts, you know that everybody knew Jesus could do miracles. There's numerous accounts, I don't even know how many, all through the gospels, where people were following him great distances and actually pestering him because of the signs that he was able to do on the six. The feeding, on the sick, the feeding of the 5,000 in John 6 was just that. People were following him over the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee because of the signs that he could do. And then when they got there, he did another sign and he fed them. But then he flipped them right on their head and he said, it's not about the sign. It's not about the physical food. It's about the spiritual food. I am your spiritual sustenance. If you eat of my body, that is if you identify with, with me as your savior, as your God, as your king, you come into my kingdom. Repent 
and believe? And they said, no. Most of them said, no. The signs are meant to signify, Peter says, and you know this. Jesus even tried to reason with them. Jesus even tried to tell people in John chapter 10, he's in this back and forth with the Pharisees. It happens a lot in the Gospels. And, he said, and Jesus said some radical stuff. Jesus said things that if he's not telling the truth, we should do away with him. He said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from the sky. He said, if you don't believe that I am, you will die in your sin. He said in John 8, before Abraham was, I am. He was claiming the tetragrammaton. He was claiming the name Yahweh, God, from Exodus 3. He was saying, I am Yahweh, and they picked up stones to throw at him. These radical things that he said, he also backed them up with these miraculous powers. And in John 10, he says to the Pharisees, he says, listen, you guys search the Old Testament scriptures because you believe in them that there is salvation, but they are the ones that testify about me and you refuse to believe in me, but believe at least, if you don't believe me for my words, believe at least the miracles. At least believe that there's something to what I'm saying by what I'm able to do. But they rejected him again and again. And Peter is saying, y'all saw it. Y'all know it, you can't deny it. It was just 50 so days prior that they had put him on a cross. This was fresh in their memories. So this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, this one who is attested by miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him, you delivered over to be killed, you put on a cross, you killed by the hands of lawless men, you put him to death, verse 23. There's so much here. This, this, if I don't throw anything at me, this tickles my inner Calvinist a little bit. I'm not a diehard Calvinist, but there's something to it. What Peter's saying here is that Jesus was not a victim. You see Jesus on the cross, you see him bloody, you see him dying. He was not weak, he was not feeble, he was not out of control, he was not being victimized. He was a willing and an informed volunteer all the way to before the world even began, to eternity past where we cannot have, we have no ability to compute. It was the preordained, it was the, it was the predetermined, it was the foreknowledge of God. Those two words, the, the idea that, they, that they're trying to get across is the idea of a horizon. There's a boundary. There's, there's, there's a place where there's nowhere further to go. It's intentional, it's a boundary, it's cut off, it's confirmed, it is set, it is immutable. And what Peter is saying here is that the predetermined and foreknowledge of God knew that Jesus was gonna be crucified, but you're the ones that nailed him to the cross. Jesus was not a victim, he was a volunteer. This also shows us that God is not a malevolent God. There's this this weird belief that God is this horrible, cynical, malevolent, military type A taskmaster, and then there's the kind, benevolent, graceful son, and they're opposed at each other, and Jesus is sort of standing between us and his father saying, you know, they're not that bad, the Holocaust wasn't great, and I know that the murder rates in Portland are only going up, but I, I swear to you, they're selling illegal mushrooms downtown, but I'm, I promise you, they're not that bad. That's not what's going on here. What we see from here is that God is benevolent, God is kind, all the way from before he even created the predetermined knowledge of God. He knew he so loved the world that he sent his son. Jesus didn't make the father loving. The father was loving and he sent his son to prove to us that he is loving. Jesus is not a victim. The father is not malevolent and our responsibility for the things that we do does not go anywhere. And this is one of the mysteries of the Father. This is one of the mysteries of existence. This is one of the mysteries in Scripture. The predetermined and foreknowledge of God, that's there. 
But Judas was not an automaton. He wasn't a robot. The Romans were not robots. The Jewish people were not robots. The ones who laid down their clothing and said, Hail, King of the Jews, the Son of David, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Those very same ones who a few days later cried out, let his blood be on our heads and on the heads of our children. They wanted to do that. They were not forced. They were not coerced. Somehow in his sovereignty and his wisdom, the Lord uses the very actions of human beings to bring about his very purposes. Judas was responsible. These people were responsible. How does God make something happen, but we in our own freedom do it? I don't know. I don't know. And if you study the Bible at all, if you study the scriptures at all, you read some really weird stuff when people try to take the mind of God and fit it into our finite brains. May I suggest that we just take it on faith that God is bigger than us. That when Isaiah says that his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that his ways are higher than our ways, that we just bow the knee and say amen. Jesus said in John 6 that if you, no one comes to me unless the Father draws them. There has to be a supernatural drawing. There has to be an awakening in our hearts for us to desire Jesus. That's what the Bible says. But then Jesus tells the guys in in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures, they speak of me, but you refuse to believe. He invited the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? Sell your stuff, follow me, make me your king, not not your cash. I'm king, not your money. And the rich young ruler said, no, I'm done. And he walked away. It wasn't worth it. He refused to follow Jesus, but Jesus invited him. So there's this mystery of human decision, human choice, human free will, and God's sovereignty. You killed him, but it was always the plan for it to go down. And Peter said the same thing in, in chapter 4 while he's preaching, and he's, he's preaching and he's praying, and he says, Truly there is in this city gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, So we have individuals. We have Herod, Pontius Pilate, and then the masses, the people of Israel and the Gentiles to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Friends, be honest. I don't know how that works out. But Peter is saying this was the predetermined plan. God in his love set his, set his will to send his son to save us from our sins. And yet you're the guys that put him on the cross. But let's not forget that even there, these people that cried out for Jesus' blood, 3,000 of them are about to be saved. Even when Jesus was on the cross, he said, my, he said forgive them, they know not what they do. He wasn't kidding. Even, even them, even that level of sin, even that level of rejection, rejection, Jesus is still saying, come, come, come. You put them on the cross, but you can still believe in the gospel. You delivered them into the hands of lawless men. They didn't know what they were doing. They were ignorant of the scriptures. They didn't understand what was going on, even though they read the scriptures regularly. Chapter 13 of Acts, verse 27 says, Those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him or understand the utterance of the prophets. They did not recognize Jesus. They did not understand the Old Testament, even though the prophets are read every single Sabbath, but they fulfilled the prophets by condemning him. They acted in ignorance. They misunderstood. They had Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man ascending up to the, to the throne next to the Ancient of Days. They had Deuteronomy 18, the prophet that will come who's like Moses but greater. But then they had Isaiah 53, the suffering servant text. And they what, how, how, is he, how is the Messiah the one that's going to raise up unto the throne, but he's smitten and 
he's whipped for our transgressions and he's unattractive and they didn't have it all put together and then unbeknownst to them they fulfilled that very rejection and made possible that resurrection and ascension by condemning him. They didn't understand. Deuteronomy 21 says, curse is everyone who hangs on a tree. So to get a Jewish person to believe 2,000 plus years ago that that dead guy hanging on a tree is the Messiah was a hard sell. But may I encourage you that however your life looks, Jesus hanging on the cross dead looked worse. You might have evidence, you might have reason intellectually and experientially to say God's abandoned me, he's not working, he's, he's ignoring me or he's not paying attention or something. May I suggest that there's something you don't understand. Anybody could have looked at Jesus' dead body on the cross and said, well, nice try, but that was a failure. And they did. The two guys on the road to Emmaus, they thought it was over. Mary showed up to Jesus' tomb with spices because she was expecting to find a dead Christ, not a living Christ. May I encourage you, friends. Jesus is working. Jesus is active. No matter how it looks from our perspective, no matter how it looks from our side, there is something there to learn. There is something there. There's a reason there to worship. And I learned this experientially whenever I sat there by my father's bedside as he died. His breathing got less and less and less in the hospital. But you know what, you know what was so, I've said this before, you know what was so amazing about my father's death? I heard a pastor say this. And I'm going to steal it and just use it for the rest of my life. This pastor said, sometimes God is glorified by the sick becoming well. And my dad was sick. But oftentimes, even more oftentimes, God is glorified by his saints dying well. And my dad died well. My dad died with a glimmer in his eye. He had the hope of heaven before him. And when he took his last breath, our entire family knew dad's in heaven. The cancer is gone. He's eating, he's eating coffee cake. He's drinking his smoothies. He's going on his hikes. Everything that he ever did on Mount Hood, it's a snot rocket compared to what's in heaven. Dad is good. And we there in that room, we worshiped when he died because we knew that Jesus is good. So whatever you're going through, I can't pretend to know what it is and it's not that you shouldn't express it, you shouldn't feel it, you shouldn't ignore it, but don't let the devil convince you that whatever it is that you're going through is proof and evidence and empirical hard, it's empirical fact that God has abandoned you. That's a lie from hell. So don't believe that. Repent and believe that Jesus is working, and come and find prayer, come and find community, show up here at six, be a part of people, air it out. The Bible says that in the abundance of counsel there is safety, come and, and we'll mourn with those who mourn, we rejoice with those who rejoice, come and be a part of the body of the church if you're in pain, come and be with us. I gotta move on, <laughs> but verse 24, you killed him, you nailed him to a cross, but, verse 24, God raised him from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. He was raised from the dead. You handed him over, you killed him, but God raised him up. Jesus was attested by his miracles, most notably his resurrection. He was overqualified for death. Satan had nothing on him. The punishment of death did not apply to Jesus Christ. In John chapter 14, Jesus Right before he takes off, it's his, it's the, right before he gets crucified, it's his last night with his disciples and he says to them, the ruler of this world is coming but he has nothing on me. And part of what he meant with that, by that is that Jesus had never sinned in word, thought, or deed. All the Old Testament ceremonial law, civil law, moral law, Jesus did it perfectly. So whenever he died, Satan couldn't look at Jesus and say, here's your record, you're mine 
forever. There was nothing that he had. And that invincibility, that victory, that perfect life, that perfect righteousness, which is God the Father's standard to enter his heaven, is given to us as a gift. We don't earn it. We strive and we try and we do right and we fail. And then if, you, if, if you're on a works righteousness mentality, that's got to be terrifying because are you doing good enough or are you not? God's, God's standard is absolute perfection forever. James says if you fail, if you keep the whole law but fail in one point, you've failed the whole thing. In, in the life, in the blood, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that first fruit, that resurrection from the dead, that life that's invincible, that life that cannot be held by the power of death, that's the life that he gives you. It's not only a length of life, it's a quality of life. It's eternal and it's perfect and it's only available in him. It's only available by faith in him. He died, he raised from the dead because death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to hold on to him. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass what is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. That's Isaiah 25, 8. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The ascension, we talked about this last week. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it was, a pre it, was a, it was promises being fulfilled, it was prophecy being fulfilled, and it was a preview of the life that we have to look forward to, come what may here. His ascension is every reason for hope. His ascension is every reason for peace and for stillness because whatever storms ail us here, it's just adding to the glory that's to come. Second Corinthians chapter four. We don't look to the things that are seen but unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. This light and momentary affliction is actively preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comprehension. If you're tired, if you're alone, if you're unseen, if you're working your fingers to the bone, if you're depressed, if you're anxiety-ridden and nobody, pay, nobody is either paying attention or you're not letting people in or people just don't know and you're trying to white-knuckle it and you're trying to get by it and you're suffering, Come into the light, confess, be a part of the body. And those things that are ailing you, those things that are hurting you are not for nothing. They're actively preparing a weight of glory beyond all comparison. Jesus said that the righteous will, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the Father. That is a promise to you if you are a Christian. And it's, it's fuel to endure this life here and now that the world cannot take away. If you're buried alive Jesus is there with you. That promise is still there. Can't earn it. There's no merit. It's a gift. By faith, through grace. Jesus was raised up. God raised him up. Verse 25, I gotta start closing out or we're gonna be here all night. For David said of him, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand, so I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not forsake my soul to Hades nor give your Holy One over to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Whenever you first read that, you can think that that sounds like it's David talking about himself. I saw the Lord continually before me. He is at my right hand. My heart was glad. My flesh will live in hope. But notice verse 25, it says that David says this of him. This is David predicting in the Psalms the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is Psalm 16, 
verses eight through 11. This is David predicting that Jesus would raise from the dead. Verse 27, you will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor will your Holy One see corruption. When talking about David, Paul in Acts chapter 13 says of him, he pulls from this sermon and he says in Acts chapter 13, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep and he was laid among his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption, did not see decay, did not see atrophy. Jesus was raised. He was not left in the grave. He rose from the grave. He didn't start to stink. He didn't start to rot. His body did not see corruption. David, on the other hand, most certainly did see corruption. He did decompose. Verse 29, men and brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this very day. And so because he was a prophet and he knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to set one of the fruit of his own body on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ that he was neither forsaken to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. David was a prophet. David was one of the Old Testament prophets that was inquiring what time the spirit of Christ was predicting the sufferings of Christ, 1 Peter 1, 11. And as a prophet writing the Old Testament, he wrote of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we have in Acts and through all the rest of the teaching of in the letters through the New Testament, all of them connected. The Psalms are connected to David, are connected to Jesus, are connected to Joel, is connected to Numbers, all of it, the Bible woven together in perfect harmony. David was one of these prophets. And he was promised that one of his own seeds, someone from his own bloodline, would be on his throne. In Psalms 132, the Lord promises this with an oath. Psalms 132, 11 and 12 says this, Yahweh has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Listen closely to this. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your own throne if, notice that, if your sons keep my covenant, and my testimony, which I will teach them, and their sons also sh shall sit upon your throne forever. David and Jesus. Jesus is from the line of David. He's not only from the line of Israel. He's not only a Jew. He's directly linked through blood in the genealogy to King David. He's from a regal and from a holy, from a, from a kingly bloodline. And whenever we, the, in, in Matthew's gospel, Starting right off, there's this long genealogy and it's easy to skip because it's boring and you can't pronounce the names and we don't know why it's there and we don't have any context for it so we skip over it, I do it too. But that genealogy directly links Jesus to King David. David, Isaac, or David, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All three of them, the patriarchs and David himself because Jesus was not only being linked to the Jewish people, Jewish history, Jewish heritage, but also to David himself because it was promised to David from God that the Messiah would come through his bloodline. In the very first words of Matthew's gospel, he says, it is so. Once again, this thing comes to mind. Everything is connected. But notice that he says, if. He says, if your sons keep my covenant, if they keep my commandments, if they keep my testimony. This promise to David occurred in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And when Jesus was born, being in the genealogy, in the line of David, all of it perfectly preordained and foreknown by God the Father, 
Luke 1.32, someone prays over Jesus and says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord will give to him the throne of David his father and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and, his, and in his kingdom there will be no end. That is going to happen. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself and that if in Psalms 132 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ so that you and I don't have to wear the weight of it. That if goes away because it was fulfilled by Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. The if is no longer necessary because our righteousness, our if, our perfection, if we obey the covenants, if we obey the testimony, if we obey the commands and the rules, they have been obeyed perfectly in Christ and we get his record. That is salvation. We get his perfect record. Colossians chapter one, and now we are holy and blameless and above reproach. It's an amazing miracle. And so verse 31, he looked ahead to the resurrection of Christ. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up. I gotta, I gotta pause, I know I'm going long, but this is exciting. This is why people have asked me whenever I preach, I'll often say this Jesus, this Jesus, this Jesus. And people have asked me why, why do you say that? Why this Jesus? Because different religions teach a different Jesus. Lots of religions believe in Jesus, but this is the Jesus who is God in the flesh, truly man, truly God, simultaneously miraculous, and mysterious, beautiful, and true, who came to seek and save that which is lost. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And the reason why Jesus was so repulsive to so many people is because we have to look at him on the cross and say, we deserve that and we did that. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the punishment. Thank you, Jesus, for paying the price. You are my Lord and Savior. You are my King. I repent of my sins. I want to be with you. And God the Spirit quickens us. We are born again and we become affectionate and loving towards the things of God, not earning it, not merit, not ladder climbing or stair climbing or goal attaining, but just pure mercy and grace. His perfection is given to us. This Jesus, God raised up to which we are all witnesses. Verse 33, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out to which you now both see and hear. The Holy Spirit has been poured out and that's what's happening here. They're not drunk. Christ has risen. He has ascended. Prophecy has been fulfilled. He was attested to by his miracles. He was attested to by his resurrection. And as we're gonna see, he was attested to by his ascension. And this, by the way, is the fulfillment of the promise in John chapter seven. Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit. And then John inserts, it's almost a parenthetical insertion. He says in chapter seven, verse 39, the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Well, here we are. Peter is saying, it has happened. Having been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured this out which you both see and hear. The Holy Spirit has come. David didn't ascend, but Jesus did. David saw corruption. Jesus did not. Jesus resurrected. David did not. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. That's Psalms 110 verse one. And it's important, write that down, pay attention to that because that is also a fulfillment to a promise. And it's actually the answer to a question. It's an answer to a mystery that's kind of been floating through the gospels. 
In Matthew chapter 7, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has one of these run-ins with the religious leaders. And he asks them a question. I love this. I love this Jesus. While the Pharisees were gathered together, this is Matthew 7, verse 41, if you want to write it down and go look at it later. Jesus, the Pharisees gathered together and Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus said, well, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, and he quotes Psalms 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies beneath your feet. And Jesus continuing says, therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? How is David? This is a patriarchal society. Dad was, dad was top dog. Dad was above the sons. The older brother was above the younger brother. You all know the story of Jacob and Esau. That was a switcheroo. That was weird because usually the son is the one who gets the birthright. The son's the one who gets all the inheritance. And Jesus is saying, how is David going to give birth to somebody? Or you know what I mean. He's going to produce an offspring with a, with a lady's help and then call him Lord. That doesn't make any sense, does it? I lost my place because I'm walking around in circles. Oh, come on, bro. There we go. Therefore, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day to ask him another question. How is David going to call one of his offspring Lord? Well, if you go back to the verses that are connected to the verses that we're reading tonight, it's because David is the the genealogy, the line in which Christ was born. He was a descendant of David. Nobody expected Messiah to be born like that. He was born in almost a very normal way. He was born of a woman. His first bed was a feeding trough for a cow, but he was, there was the miraculous child of God the Spirit impregnating Mary by miracle. And he was from the line of David. And so David says... The Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand, sit at my right hand. This is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter seven. The son of man coming and sitting at the throne of the ancient of days. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know, verse 36, let, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Jesus is the Lord and Christ. And Peter makes the father, the doer, and the approver, and the verifier all the way through this sermon. Notice this. Whenever we pick them out one by one, God says and does everything. God the Father, Yahweh, says and does everything. Verse 17, it shall be in the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit. Verse 22, Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and signs and wonders which God did through him. Verse 24, God raised him up. Verse 32, God raised him up. Verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Verse 21, when I ask the question, it will be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Who is the Lord? Verse 36, God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. Jesus came, he was born, he lived, and he died. And Peter's first sermon, the first apostolic sermon is saying, look at your Bibles, 
read it closely. You've misunderstood. There is grace. It's not too late. He was attested to you by miracles and wonders and signs. He went into the grave, but he did not stay there. He did not see corruption. He raised again, promising you that your life will be very much just like that if you put your faith in him. This is the Lord and the Christ, Jesus himself. He is king. He's God in the flesh. Peter said, this is the way that it is. And we'll just cheat and read verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brothers, what must we do? And Peter said, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But we'll look at that next week. Friends, Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord. He is alive. He has ascended. And his life was dramatic and it was hard and it was ugly, and people looked at him and thought, no way, no way. Friends, if you're here tonight and you don't believe this, question your no way. No way, Jesus. Nah, it's an old ancient book. It was written by a bunch of old goat herders who were smoking smoking peyote on the backside of Palestine. This is all rubbish. This is not rubbish. It's too brilliant to be an accident. Question your doubt. Repent. Believe in Jesus. Be reaffirmed in your faith. He loves you. He's after you. He's pursuing you. He's putting something together. And if you're here tonight and you just feel lost, if you feel like Jesus is still dead on the tree and he has seen corruption and his tomb is still among us this day, it's not true. It's not true. Be revitalized. Come and pray. Come and confess. Raise your voices in worship. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son. So that whosoever, even the people that cried out for Jesus' blood, whosoever would believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's amazing. That's a good God. Jesus is awesome. Amen? Amen.